Next month, nearly a year and a half into the Biden administration, Veterans Affairs officials will reopen talks with their union workforce. The talks will be new. The articles in contention have been sticking points for years. Attorney Ibadan Roberts represents the American Federation of Government Employees National VA Council, and she joins me now to sort this all out. Ms. Roberts, good to have you back. Thank you for having me, Tom. And these articles, I mean, what is the status of the contract between this large, it's a couple of hundred thousand employees of VA and the agency? Are they on an old contract that's half negotiated? Uh, Review for us what's going on here. Sure. So we are still operating on that 2011 contract. So we did um, engage in bargaining under the Trump administration. Uh, There was an imposed contract. However, the membership did not ratify it. They voted it down. Uh, And that was right with the timing of President Biden coming into office. And so he issued Executive Order 14003, and the VA agreed to renegotiate, that we would wipe the slate clean. We would not go um, based on that contract imposed by the panel, and we would start over again. So we are still operating under that 2011 agreement. And is the entire thing open for negotiation, or are you going to try to concentrate on certain contentious articles within the contract? Great question. Yes, we uh, VA did agree to limit the reopening. So it's not the whole thing. Only 12 12 articles are reopened. Uh, And so those would be the most contentious, like the discipline article, the official time article, um, for us, the safety article. But there are 12 instead of uh, the... 55 articles we have in that agreement. Right. So they all agree that they work for VA and get paid. That's the easy part. So the 12 is the hard stuff. And tell us what what you think is at the top of the list for where the real contention is. And we can then talk about whether that contention remains with the new Mm -hmm. team in place at VA. Sure. It seems the biggest issues for the VA are the discipline article. Obviously, they had that Accountability Act passed in 2017. So it looks like they want to bring all the other types of discipline in line with that Accountability Act, which only applied to adverse actions. They're also interested in official time. It looks like they want to make some serious cuts uh, to official time. And then the other big ticket is uh, midterm bargaining. Uh, They appear to want it to only be national and not local. So some of this is familiar. (laughs) It's very, uh, these are the contentious articles we had even in the prior administration. I think what's so surprising about it is when Biden came into office and, and issued executive order 14003 and made it very clear that he wanted agencies to bargain over numbers, methods, and means, made it very clear the government is a model employer and he wants to encourage union organizing and collective bargaining. But it seems the VA still has people, some remnants of the prior administration, who are not interested in doing that. So their proposals are very similar. Interesting. And just tell us more about the details of the discipline article and how that changed under that law that passed a few years back. Sure. So the Accountability Act uh, gave the VA an additional disciplinary uh, authority. 
So it didn't get rid of the old ones, but it gave them an additional one. And what it did was it truncated, it lessened the amount of time the agency had to propose to get to the final decision. So it's all done within 15 days. Proposal, the employees reply, and then the final decision within 15 days. In the, in the other authorities, the employee has at least 30 days. It could be longer, but it's at least 30. And then it lowers the burden of proof for review with the MSPB. Um, so those are only for adverse actions. So suspensions over 15 days, demotions and removals, anything less than 15 days uh, would not fall under the Accountability Act. And so the agency, at least as it stands now, wants to expand the group that would come under that act under the 15-day deal. Their their proposal seems to want to apply the Accountability Act to every type of disciplinary action. And with respect to official time, has the union gotten back its space in VA facilities? And what is the status of official time that they have now? Yes, yes. So so funny enough, we did file a grievance over that and won the grievance (laughs) on the space issue. Uh, But once President Biden came into office and instructed agencies to undo what they did under the prior three executive orders, the VA did agree to go ahead and also return the official time. So they do, they are, people are back in their space now and they, they have received their official time back. We're speaking with Ibadan Roberts. She represents the American Federation of Government Employees National VA Council. Then if the agency is proposing the old terms under space and official time, that would seem to be a regression of the proposal versus what is reality going on right now. Right. Yeah. So they, they have not opened the space article. So that one is fine. But it is official time that uh, would be a regression from what it is now. It significantly reduces it. And I don't know if you remember, but under President Trump, that executive order wanted to reduce official time to 25%. No one had more than 25%. And so obviously Biden said to undo that, but the people on the VA's bargaining team have proposed 30%. Got it. Wow. (laughs) So yeah. So when you divide the time by the number of employees, the result is very little time during hours that union people can spend on employee issues. And therefore you had people resigning or leaving or just working at night at home on union issues. And I think that's what the union, I think, wants to avoid, fair to say. Correct. Correct. And we think that's in line with what President Biden has said. All right. So who is going to be doing the bargaining? Do you say it's Trump holdovers or that seems like an odd situation given that there there is a new secretary and a new... <laughs> there is know. a new secretary. Um, and, and the secretary, I, I believe, has been in step with President Biden. However, some of the people under them are still there. So some of the people who were um, in control of the bargaining previously are still there and are still pulling the strings there. The team is different. It's not the same team that we had under the Trump administration. But again, there are some similarities. So I'll give you an example. We had a big issue with travel when we were under the Trump administration. They, the VA did not um, timely provide our travel. Now we discuss making sure the VA had our team early so that we wouldn't run into those same issues. We gave them our team in September. And believe it or not, we still did not settle travel. We didn't receive our travel until uh, I believe it was last week. So we're in the same position we were in before. 
um, with the VA. So some of those same little antics are um, still happening. But the people you'll be bargaining with, are they career employees or are they political appointees? No, these are all career employees. So that is different. So yes, one of the differences, one of the, and I think encouraging differences is the people on this team are familiar with what labor management relations is. And that we did not have that on the prior team. So again, that's what makes it so surprising that the proposals are similar. Um, they just know how to do it, I guess, legally, unlike the Trump administration would propose things that were illegal on their face. In other words, then there's the possibility that the bargaining team on behalf of the agency is, as you point out, career employees. They may have similar opinions about how things should be between them and the union, between management and the union, regardless of who the president is. That's right. That's exactly right. All right. So that sets up a dynamic within VA that you really can't control because you can't go to the political people and tell them to tell the senior executives or the people doing the bargaining what to do. That's outside the union's purview. Right. That would be outside our purview. We couldn't do that. We think, you know, the secretary could. Right. Um, He he could definitely direct um, the people under him. But we couldn't do that. Right. So when and where does this bargaining take place and what do you expect the format to be and how long do you think it could take? So right now we're expecting that it's at, it's going to be at the most two years is what we're hoping. Um, we're meeting two weeks on, two weeks off. So that is a grueling schedule. Uh, our first session uh, will be traveling February 28th for our first session in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, the next one after that will be in D.C., and so we'll alternate the articles that we're, we're going to open up and discuss, and it'll go from there. So, But we've planned for two years. So two years would take you then to 2024. That would be 13 years since the <laughs> contract that you're operating under first came into place. That's right. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm just going to leave that one right where it is and let that <laughs> sink in. Attorney Ibadan Roberts represents the American Federation of Government Employees National VA Council. Good luck either way. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity, and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. 
Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on 
what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective about my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Everything's getting more expensive these days. Gas, rent, and even your music. While other music services keep jacking up their prices, Live One is letting you lock in the best music membership at the best price. Live One Plus is just $3.99 per month. Get all your favorite music ad-free, along with unlimited skips and maximum audio quality. Beat inflation with the best deal in music at just $3.99 per month. Visit liveone.com slash bestmusic to get Live One Plus now. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. <laughs> 